Before the Dodgers moved to L.A., do you think we didn't have baseball? We had the Angels Pacific Coast League, home run legend Steve Bilko. Even his strikeouts brought us to our feet, prodigious titanic stats. Sometimes he hit like Kirk Gibson, and others like Casey at the bat. Welcome back to the Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer. This is our flagship show on the network, Coaching Kernan. We've got a great guest for you today. Gave you a little treat with that first song right there. That was not Black Jack McDowell doing his rendition to take me out to the ball game like we had last week. That was Who's On First by Ross Altman. It was about Steve Bilko, one of the topics of our guest books that he wrote. Our guest today, Galen White, uh, wrote five books on baseball. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a book that he wrote on football. He's writing on football right now that's going to be released soon, but a highly decorated author. Um, I'm going to let him talk about each of the books, but I'll give you the titles uh, right off the bat here just so you know what we're covering today. The Bilko Athletic Club, Handsome Ransom Jackson, Accidental Big Leaguer, Left on Base in the Big Leagues, Legends Greats. We've got, well, the newest book called Coach of a Lifetime, but before that, Singles and Smiles, How Artie Wilson Broke the Color Barrier, and The Best Little Baseball Town in the World. Uh, Galen White, welcome to our show today. We're glad to have you. We've had some great conversations off the air. before we get into your stuff, I want to address our audience. Uh, we all almost up to 11,000 subscribers as of this morning. We want to thank you guys for your support. Remember to download, listen, like, subscribe, comment. We'll always respond to it. And continue to follow us on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram now. We're getting a good following there. And you can find us, if you don't download it, you can find us immediately on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Um, and that's audience continue to support the show through Pratheon.com if you would. Uh, it'd be nice to donate and give some back to Kevin for the efforts he gives to the show. You can go Pratheon.com, coaching Kernan. And with that, I want to welcome our guest, Galen White, to the show and welcome our star of the show back, Kevin Kernan. Good to be here. Yeah. Thanks, David. Uh, yeah. And Kevin, had uh, just, just kind of briefly, because this moves into our show today, especially with the new book, um, your, your most recent article really highlighting two sport athletes. And I think our audience will understand, they know that's important to us, but they'll understand how important it is to Galen's new book uh, with his, his main character, Coach Cook. But uh, give us a little bit of that article, but we do encourage everybody to read that on Ball Nine. Yeah, basically it's something I, I've been wanting to write for a while. A lot of research went into this. Uh, and um, I remember sitting in um, Buckshaw Walter's office when he was Orioles manager. And one day we were talking about that subject, two sport athletes. Because there's a lot going on, and I get it when you put your kid through just, you know, he just wants to concentrate on one sport right now. But it doesn't hurt to go somewhere else. I mean, my older son, when he started playing football, he became a a very good, even better baseball player. He was stronger. It really helped him. Um, So the two-sport athlete is is really – so important. And I say multiple. It could be multiple. A lot of these guys play three sports. Scott Rowland just got in the Hall of Fame. I voted for him in my ballot, of course. And, um, uh, you know, he was Mr. Indiana in baseball and he was runner up in Mr. Indiana in basketball, Jasper, Indiana High School. So uh, it shows you 
And I'm not just talking about the special athletes. I'm talking about all athletes. No matter what level you are, it helps you to do different things. So that day in the office, Buck just ran through the – he picked up the uh, press guide, the Orioles press guide, went to all the biographies of the players, and, and just started highlighting all the players that played multiple sports on his team and in his organization. So so I know these gurus and everything want to tell you, you know, you want to work 12 months on hitting and whatever – you know, become a multiple sports player and also become a multiple sports player within your own sport. And what I mean by that is work on throwing, defense, you know, hitting, all that stuff. And uh, especially now, I think it's going to be different in the major leagues. But excited to talk to uh, Galen. Um, you know, I think when I did my original article on him in Ball 9, I mentioned that. And I and, I, and you'll see today, I'm going to turn it over to him basically right now with some questions. Um He's kind of like the Shelby foot of, uh, to me, of, uh, of of minor league baseball and telling baseball stories and and just uh, you know it, it's kind of like uh, he's almost a Ken Burns character that you would see on one of Ken's show and I'm amazing that Ken has missed him uh, with all the baseball stuff he has done. But uh, welcome to the show, Galen and uh, Steve Bilko. We let in with that music. Uh, just uh, you can briefly get, just give the uh, listeners a. A rundown of why you were so fascinated by Steve Bilko. Thanks, Kevin, and thank you for those kind comments. Uh, we we met, of course, uh, over my latest book, uh, "The Best Little Baseball Town in the World," and as a result of that, uh, I wound up sending you the Bilko Athletic Club, which was my first book. I was nine years old when Steve Bilko arrived in Los Angeles in 1955. For that period of time, he was a big man. A six foot one, 230 something pounds. Actually, his weight varied between 230 and 270. Uh, so that made him uh, much bigger than uh, what was the typical slender baseball player at that time. The ball players were more like Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, Ted Williams, Stan Musial, all very slender. Here comes Steve Bilko, built like Babe Ruth. So to me, uh, he was Babe Ruth when he hit 38 home runs his first year in LA. He played for the L.A. Angels. He played for what uh, was the original Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. Uh, The uh, original home run derbies were filmed there at Wrigley Field in L.A., and a lot of different movies were also done there. So that was uh, uh, the first uh, Wrigley Field. It was patterned after the one in Chicago, which was known as Cubs Park prior to, uh, you know, soon after Wrigley Field came in in L.A., then they changed the name in Chicago. But here I am, a nine-year-old, and here comes Steve Bilko, and he hits 38 home runs the first year. In 56, his second year in L.A., and that's uh, the subject of the book, The Bilko Athletic Club, because he was he was a triple crown winner. He had 55 home runs, 164 RBIs, hit 360, and the team won the pennant, uh, the Pacific Coast League pennant, by 16 games. And the Pacific Coast League uh, was a quality league at that point. It was. In fact, the, uh, some people considered it a third major league. It probably wasn't. But a lot of uh, former, in fact, the league was made up mostly of former major league players. Uh, in fact, in 56, uh, a young 18-year-old played for the Hollywood Stars across town. His name was Bill Mazeroski. Uh, also, in that period of time I'm talking about, Mudcat Grant came through San Diego. He had Rocky Colavito also with the San Diego Padres. So you had some young talent uh, coming up there. Ted Williams started in the Coast League, uh, as as did um, Joe DiMaggio. All the DiMaggio brothers came up 
through the Coast League. So it was far and away the best of the minor leagues. And when a ball player got to the end of his career or near the end, uh, he preferred playing on the West Coast. He had better weather. They traveled by jet before they did uh, traveled by airplane before they did in the majors. And uh, it, it and they made more money in many cases. Bilko made more money in the minors in L.A. than he ever did in the majors. That's amazing. So yeah. I'm thinking he's Steve, I'm thinking he's Babe Ruth. And then years later, I'm talking to Joe Graziola and telling him what it was like to see Steve Bilko the first time in 55. And then he has hitting 50 five home runs in 56. He had 56 home runs, 57. Altogether, 149 home runs in those three years playing for the Angels in the Coast League. I'm thinking he's Babe Ruth. And Joe Graziel, I'm interviewing him uh, for a Monday night game back in 1975 in Kansas City. And he says, uh, I can see why you'd think that. Because when he hit a ball, he hit it. It was a home run. It sounded like a home run. It looked like a home run. So that inspired me to go find out more about Steve Bilko and, and many of the other players I write about. I've always been fascinated by guys who had great minor league careers, but for one reason or another, never quite uh, made it that big in the majors. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That's, and that's the reason we have you on here. We, your love for baseball is incredible. And, uh, you know, I encourage ev- everyone, uh, and there's so many – I mean, as baseball, uh, you go on Facebook and, and so many baseball followers love to read the books. And I'm sure a lot of them have your books. But I want to point out to the uh, best uh, little baseball town in the world, because you, you have an ability to drill down on a subject and and really make you feel like you're there. And, and again, I'm, um, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you. Not much, but uh you know that's about Crowley, uh, Louisiana, and a and a and an amazing team there. And you know it's it just uh, I'll, I'll throw a name at you, and you can tell the listeners the story. But you know, uh, you know Andy Strong. Uh, you know what happened to him in Crowley, and the response to that, and a big part of your book there, uh, the best little baseball town in the world. Andy Strong uh, was fresh out of college, Centenary College, and. Louisiana and uh, was playing center field for the Crowley Millers uh, the day before Father's Day in uh, 1950. Uh, uh, and uh, the next day he was to pick up his family and drive them down to Crowley and spend the rest of the summer. They had a big storm that day. He's playing in center field and around the sixth inning, he gets struck by lightning. Uh, he's killed. Um, and it's, um, it's that story uh I interviewed the announcer who was on the air when that happened and how he dealt with that. And I have to say this recent uh, situation with DeMar Hamlin. Yeah. That's what I was reminded of was what it must have been like for Ed Keim, the announcer. In fact, he never forgot it. I interviewed him well into his 90s. And he said, and never a day goes by and he doesn't remember uh, doing the play-by-play and and uh, and announcing that Andy Strong had been hit in center field by the lightning. And uh, so I was reminded of that uh, during the Buffalo and Cincinnati game. I also was reminded of it uh, in working on this book about Coach Lewis Cook in Crowley, uh, coach of a lifetime, the first uh, regular season game. What did we have? A lightning delay. (laughs) And, you know, the Andy Strong story is going through my head. And, of course, that. now in Louisiana, they have all these precautions, lightning detectors and other things to keep the kids safe. And that's great. But 
Yes, that incident with Andy Strong uh, is foremost in my mind still to this day. And, and, that, and it's so powerful in the book, too. And I believe uh, the little top of his cap was made of metal like we used to have back in the day. And right. uh, did, did that contribute to it? Or was that just Yeah, uh, it's believed that the top of the cap, the little uh, uh, button, yeah, was made out of steel or metal. And uh, it's believed that that was uh, what uh, acted it. Yeah. What got to him, and uh, you know the way the Ed Kime was the announcer, and I have uh, the actual recording with Ed Kime when he describes it. It's on my website. It's quite powerful when you uh, hear him uh, recall his uh, his reaction to it. And uh, you know he he he. Uh, by the way, Ed Kime had fought in the Battle of the Bulge and. And he wound up later on uh, connecting that incident with Andy Strong with a conversation he had with a uh, officer on his way to Europe. Uh, and he wound up finding this officer uh, dead in a um, canteen hall in Germany uh, right after the Germans had bombed this particular place. They happened to be at the same place. And he connects the two. Uh, and it's, like I say, just powerful and these are the kinds of stories, Kevin, um, you, you don't set out, these find you. I don't know that you find them. Uh, when I interviewed Ed Kime, I had no idea that uh, these kind of stories would come out of his mouth. And it's the same way in writing this latest book on, about Coach Cook and Coach of Lifetime. I got to know Coach Cook because I wanted Ron Guidry to do a blurb for the Crowley book. And Ron Guidry, who lives in the Lafayette area, is um, quite reticent. Uh, he, he doesn't do interviews. He keeps to himself. And I knew I wasn't going to get to him without some help. So I asked uh, Coach Cook, who played baseball in college with uh, Ron Guidry. And Coach Cook helped me connect with uh, Ron Guidry. And as a result, I find out all these great things about Coach Cook that led me to write about him. And one of the things he gets into or we get into in the book is the importance of uh, young kids in high school playing more than one sport. There you go. He uh, encouraged, uh, well, one of his best known players, Orlando Thomas, who went on to star for the Minnesota Vikings, uh, uh, still holds the record for most interceptions as a rookie, 11 his rookie year. Uh, Orlando Thomas uh, was a skinny 13-year-old, weighed 98 pounds and uh, coach, uh, Orlando announced he wanted to play in the NFL and coach said, well, are you doing everything you can to get there? I don't see you out for track. Well, Orlando Thomas, uh, was not offered a scholarship at uh, university of Southwestern Louisiana for football. He was offered a scholarship for track because he wound up going out and running the 440, increased his speed. And that's how he was finally, uh, that's how the recruiters of Southwestern Louisiana were finally convinced that Orlando Thomas could play football for him. And coach believes that uh, a, an athlete in season is a better than an athlete out of season. And he also believes that uh, the base uh, playing baseball for a football player helps him develop uh, certain skills that can help him on the football field. So it's all about developing these talents and these skills, the maturity. That's why he's uh, one who favors them playing as many sports as possible. I would not agree with you on that. I yeah. was a college two-sport athlete. and That's such I, wise words, Dave. I mean, yeah. it, it really it really hits home. 
Go ahead, Dave. Oh, no, I, I, I agree with the both of you on that. I, I felt like I was, not only was I better in sports, but I was better in my other areas of my life too, because I was more organized uh, when I was playing that, playing multiple sports. Yeah, and my daughter played in college. She played basketball and softball. So it's, uh, uh, you know, you, you run it out as long as you can and uh, you have fun with it and you, you learn from it. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, I think we become fixated on just, you know, these parents get a little crazy and they just become fixated on things and they forget about the fun you have in sports and different sports too. I mean, let's not overlook fun. I mean, that's, that's a big part of it. And that's why, uh, you know, when I read the, you know, the best little baseball town in the world, it was, uh, it brought you right back. And I just thought of one thing I got to ask before, before, before I throw it over you, Dave, um, as a writer, I'm curious, like, how do you come across the, uh, how'd you get the information and finally wind up with the, uh, the tape of the uh, call of the, the lightning incident? How, 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 you know, there's a lot of writers that listen to us as well and stuff like that. And, and this is for young people too. The, you, you know, like you say, a story comes to you, but you got to do your homework. How, how did that develop? I, uh, I was, I was curious about that when I read it in a book. Well, uh, I didn't have the actual tape of the recording. When I interviewed Ed Keim uh, many years later, I asked him to try and do a recreation. Oh, uh, smart, smart. And he did. Uh, and then we talked about that recreation. What I have on my website, galenwhite.com, it's also galenwhitebaseball.com, but I'm allowing for the football book coming out, so I've changed it slightly. But I, uh, the recording I have on there is... Uh, where Ed Kime is talking about that experience of doing that play-by-play. And believe me, when you listen to it, your mind's going to go to what just happened, and we all saw between the Bengals and the Bills what happened to DeMar. Uh, it really does. It's, it's, That's a great it, comparison. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Right? Yeah, it. it um, uh, I, I, kind of, I really felt for the announcers. Sometimes, you know, silence is the only thing to handle such a situation, and um, it was a tough situation for the announcers in this particular case, just as it was for Ed. Remember, at that time, 1950 radio, people, the game was in Alexandria, uh, Louisiana, and uh, people in Crowley, Louisiana, were listening. And I interviewed one uh, guy. He was around seven, eight years old. He still remembers the broadcast. And so here, a young kid is listening to this announcer uh, and try. Uh, describing what had happened on the field to this guy struck by lightning. So quite a, a powerful story. But the the stories uh, and the ideas for the books, just like the Crowley book, um, I didn't know anything about uh, Conklin Merriweather, who is one of the people I write about in uh, the best little baseball town in the world. He was a home run slugger in the minors. I was interviewing um, uh, a pitcher uh, who had, pitched in the 20 game winner in the minor leagues. Uh, uh, I'm drawing a senior moment. His last name, first name is Hugh. I'll come up with in a, in a moment, but I'm interviewing him. And he, uh, he asked me at, at the end, he says, have you ever uh, heard of Conklin Merriweather? And I confessed I had not. He said, well, he was the greatest uh, hitter I ever faced in the minor leagues. And also the sorriest human being. Well, that got my attention, just as it would yours, Kevin. <laughs> that's, that's quite a comment. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, I went and uh, checked out Conklin Merriweather and then found out he was indeed a sorry human being. 
he wound up killing his mother-in-law and his uh, father-in-law with an axe. Uh, it, but I also found out about the town of Crowley. And so the book uh, doesn't focus necessarily on, on Conklin. And we, we write about what happened to Conklin. It's a sad story, really. But uh, uh, the, the real intrigue for me was the town, this little town in Louisiana that uh, finally got a baseball team after years of trying and uh, uh, led the miners, uh, drew over 100,000 people for three straight years at a time that minor league attendance was starting to take a dip. And that's how it got the nickname, the best little baseball town in the world. So, uh, you know, you stumble onto these things. Uh, he, he was, Conklin uh, Merriweather was a sorry character, but the town itself and baseball and the Evangel League, which was a class C league and produced guys like Eddie Lopat, uh, Hal Neuhauser, uh, Virgil Trucks, all came out of that Evangel League. So, uh, it made for a great story, and I, I, I think a great book. And Kevin uh, did a great piece called It's Miller Time on Ball Nine. I thought that was a great title. I really <laughs> was flattered by that, Kevin. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, fire away, Dave. I know you got you got some lined up. Oh, my God. I could listen to you two talk all day, though. You um, you brought up a point, Galen, about you know just stories kind of happen to you. And uh, Having gotten to know Kevin quite a bit over the last year and, and our pre-show conversations, you guys both have a way of communicating with people that draw them in and make them feel comfortable to reveal. And uh, I, I love listening to how you came upon stories as much as I do the stories. You, you shared one with me off the air, and I saw this very simple mention of a number intertwine a whole community through generations. And, and I, get, I think it started with the Orlando Thomas story, War Number 42. Could you share a little bit of that? How a single number connected generations in that little town? Well, Orlando Thomas uh, was from Crowley, Louisiana. He played uh, high school football for Coach Lewis Cook. He went on to become an All-America at University of Southwestern Louisiana in Lafayette. That wouldn't have happened again without his going out for track. And then he was the 42nd draft pick uh, in the NFL draft in 95 by the um, – Minnesota Vikings, his rookie year, he led the NFL in interceptions with 11. His first two years, he had a total of 17 interceptions, more than anybody's ever had uh, in that limited period of time. Orlando Thomas, uh, unfortunately, uh, only lived to be 42. The same age his father died. He died uh, Thomas Orlando died of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease at the age of 42. He had, it was a 10-year battle. Uh, he was diagnosed with it in 2004, died in 2014. And Orlando Thomas, um, Coach Cook was like a second father to Orlando. Um, and Orlando always wanted to do something for Coach Cook. And Coach Cook would not let him do anything. He said, save your money. And he gave him other advice, which uh, guided Orlando throughout his life. But he gave him a trophy, a Heisman-like trophy. And was called Coach of a Lifetime, and it had inscribed on it uh, his how much he loved him and support. And we have a photograph of it in the book. But Coach of a Lifetime is the title of the book about Lewis Cook, and it comes from Orlando Thomas. And the number forty-two, Orlando Thomas chose the number forty-two because of Ronnie Lott, an All-Pro safety for the San Francisco 49ers. and of course the number forty-two. Most people recognize it as Jackie Robinson's number, 
And they associate with the number 42, courage and perseverance. Well, guess what? That's what best describes Orlando Thomas in his 10-year battle with ALS, was courage and perseverance. So I've worked with an artist out of Cape May, New Jersey, Sydney Smith-Jordan, a black That's artist. Amazing stuff. Yeah, it's great stuff. I mean, she sent me a couple, couple of Right. Them. And she uh, did this painting, 42, phenomenal painting. We haven't unveiled it officially yet. So what I sent you, Kevin and David, is, uh, you know, uh, you're the first, you're a preview. But it's great stuff. And the story, we have a chapter in the book called 42. And uh, it's, a, it's, I think, the most powerful chapter in the book. Um, let, also, let me interject. I, I did, you did send me that chapter. It's an, it's a, it's an incredible chapter. It's, it's, it's going to be worth the book alone. And um, how you tied it all together. And really, I think it shows how, um, you know, there's always higher being, you know, there's God at work here in a lot of these things too, uh, how these things develop. And this is, uh, you know, I, I think one of the best things you do is you tell the story without being, you know, you let the story t- flow and tie all the loose ends together. And, and I know you, you said he died uh, at the age of 42, but he really hung on, right? To get to 42. He did. Oh yes. Yeah. He, in fact, there was, I describe in the book um, how not too long before his 42nd birthday, uh, it looked like he was going to go. And uh, uh, his his wife um, was around and came in and kind of gave him certain guidance as to what to do. She'd been around him so long and could read what the situation was. And uh, he thought he was already 42. And so, in effect, I think he was saying goodbye. And she, uh, he, he was reminded that he was still 41. He hung on a little longer, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the other thing I write about in the book is, uh, unfor- when, it, when, uh, I was there for a book signing on the Crowley book, um, uh, coach cook came out. I wanted all the people who had participated in my doing the book and coach cook had came to this restaurant where I was doing the book signing and he signed it and we were sitting around talking and he's telling stories and, just uh, the week prior uh, to all this, one of Coach Cook's players was murdered uh, in, in downtown Rain, where Coach lives. He was waiting for some friends to meet him. They were going to overnight at this one apartment they often stay at. And he was uh, by himself in this pickup. And two people, a mistaken identity, we think, uh, came by and shot him in the head through the uh, in the pickup truck. And the community was, I mean, you can imagine the impact it had on the communities of rain where the incident happened and Crowley, uh, where the young man lived. And of course went to school and played football at Notre Dame high school, played baseball too. Um, the, how coach cook handled that, uh, cause I was there in the week aftermath of that was phenomenal and how he, you know, talked to the players and, instructed them that everybody handles grief in certain ways. And, and, and just was this father figure, this rock that took them through, through this tragedy. And so all of this kind of solidified into me writing a book about coach cook, uh, which I had not planned on doing, but it was enabled by the book I did on baseball and Crowley. So sometimes Kevin is just being in the right place at the right time. And, and, basically listening to what others are saying. And I listened to coach cook and him telling stories about uh, coaching Jake Delholm 
at University of Southwestern Louisiana, and then his going on playing for the Carolina Panthers, and and uh, uh, just different stories that he told. And I thought more people need to know about this man and his philosophies. He doesn't have tryouts. Uh, he doesn't cut a player. Uh, he doesn't have captains. He believes that captains emerge on their own. No decals for the helmets, your reward, no game balls. Your reward is winning. Um, I like that's, that. That's unique these days. And I, and I commend him for that. And that's, that's what we're missing. I, I, Dave knows this. I, I often use this line, you know, it, it all started to go south when, uh, when it was your birthday in school as a second grader and, and, and in, in general, and, and, Instead of you getting a cupcake, everybody got a cupcake. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I call it the everybody got a cupcake syndrome and, and uh, I commend Coach Cook for that. Yeah. Galen, t- share with us how the town came together to support this book, because it wasn't just um, a passion of yours. The town really wanted this written as well. How did they support well, you? Well, one of the challenges, uh, the first conversation with Coach Cook, I asked him, and I, I maintain it's, it was some voice, and I'm not going to say to either of you it was the voice of God, but it was some voice I don't always hear from. Um, I asked Coach the question, and this is kind of what the voice put in my head, was, you ever thought about doing a book? And he said, yes, he had. And he'd been approached by a guy. In fact, the guy already had uh, the foreword written by Nick Saban. And so... Uh, I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, it, it hasn't been completed. It happened a couple of years ago. Don't know what's happened. I said, what if I helped you? Now, I said that without checking with my wife first. So I put myself in in jeopardy. That's the point. Just so people understand, it's not easy to write a book. It takes a lot. No. It just burns you out. I, and yeah, I was just coming off of one and had a little bit of burnout as it was. But so I live in Tennessee, 900 miles from where Coach is in Crowley, Louisiana. And so the logistics, uh, after saying what I did, I said to Coach, uh, well, you need to check with your wife because books like this are intrusive. And I need to check with my wife because of logistics. Well, what happened was, um, you know, you got issues like hotels, rental cars. Uh, where do you stay? Well, that's hotels, uh, meals, I mean, all sorts of things. Well, what happened, and I was telling David this, um, one of the, the um, coach, son, uh, coach has a son named Stu Cook. He's the youngest of three boys. His father-in-law, uh, they have an apartment above their uh, garage that they built uh, for their daughter so she'd stay home and go to the Southwest University of Lafayette, Louisiana. They offered that to me to stay when I was down there. It became known as uh, Casa G. Um, uh, Dave, uh, Coach Cook's brother uh, runs a major car dealership, Sterling Auto in Lafayette. Um, he, uh, he gives me a loaner every time I'm down there. Uh, I've spent the last two Thanksgivings in the area because the playoffs are going on at that time. I had two Thanksgiving dinners uh, one year. They were on different days, fortunately. I mean, um, I had people, uh, this is, uh, I don't know how many times this has happened to Kevin, but I had people after I interviewed them said they they handed me cash to help with my expenses. Um, I didn't ask for it. It doesn't happen much, I'll tell you that. (laughs) No. And uh, I learned, uh, well, I love char-grilled oysters. That was my greatest expense. But (laughs) 
Uh, I, I remember uh, Coach Cook and I, we went to uh, uh, a place uh, called Uncle T's there in, uh, near Crowley. And uh, Coach does not drink, never has drank. He probably is known as the only um, surviving member of Sigma Chi who never drank. Um, so we were at this bar and Coach uh, is sitting there with me. And this couple is uh, next to us and they kind of hear us talking and and then they look at coach and they, they recognize him from being on television and things like that. We have a nice visit and they leave. We go to pay our bill and the uh, bartender says, your bill, your, your, um, your meal's been covered. And um, we never even got these folks' name. They left. They paid for our, our dinner. Well, I was in the same place about a month later without coach. And these people... And they, they see me up there belatedly as they're leaving. They said, well, if we'd known you were here, we would have bought your uh, meal. And I said, well, you already did that once. Wow. <laughs> I That's said, but I'm going to tell Coach Cook that I was here. I had dinner. You saw me, but you didn't buy it because he wasn't with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's small town America. And, uh, you know, that says so much. And and those things you're talking about, and and, I, and I'm sure Dave can relate, by by. That gets back to my earlier point about you drilling down. It's you tell the story because you know the story so well because people take you in, and there you go. So that's what makes your book so so amazing, and that's really a, a talent in itself. So uh, the uh, you know that I wanted to bounce back to one other thing before I forgot. Um, we have a mutual friend in San Diego, Bill Swank, a for, former uh, probation officer, and that's how I got to meet you through through Bill and. It's all about connections and, like you said, listening. But tell us a little bit about your friendship with Bill Swank as well. Well, uh, Bill, of course, as you, he knows San Diego baseball inside and out. Uh, he has a passion for baseball during that period of time. He's, I think he's from a little town in Minnesota, Farmington. I know he's from Minnesota. He winds up in San Diego, goes to San Diego State, becomes a, uh, uh, a walking encyclopedia of San Diego Padres baseball, did a book called Echoes of Elaine Field. And I always remember a, a conversation with Bill where he made a comment, the best era of baseball is when you're a kid. And I, I cite that in one of, uh, I think it's in the Bilko book. That's really the case. Um, you know, all the seeds that at least have led to my, my writing uh, were planted when I was a youngster. Um, I wanted to be at a, uh, when I was nine, 10 years old, I wanted to be a, uh, sports writer and sportscaster. At that time, the two were not combined. Um, and to the extent I wanted to be a sportscaster, I had this game that I play in the floor and I do the play-by-play. I thought I was Vince Scully before there was a Vince Scully that I knew of. And my dad uh, was a preacher. And when he found out I wanted to be a sportscaster and he heard me doing these games and then doing the commercials, the beer commercials, he didn't like that. So he... he he discouraged me from, uh, uh, you know, going the sportscaster route. I persisted in starting my career as a sports writer. My frustration was, Kevin, was the uh, – I couldn't – never had the time to do the kind of feature type of writing uh, about people that I felt I was best at and also I felt that readers wanted. And you just didn't see much of that. I did – make a little bit of a name for myself. I did one of the first articles on three-man officiating. And um, I met this coach, uh, Layton. 
Uh, now he was coached at a little small school up in the Long Island area, and he wound up being um, a general manager and coach with the Utah Jazz. And I wound up also interviewing Calvin Murphy and other guys as a result because he was a coach at Niagara University too. So, you know, the sports writing was at the root of uh, everything I do. And then I got in the corporate world and all these ideas are continuing to come to me. I used uh, being in the corporate world to my advantage because I did a lot of travel. That's how I did a lot of these interviews over the years. So uh, the, the, the roots of Bilko Athletic Club. I interviewed Steve Bilko in 1976. He died in 1978 at age 49. Uh, so it's a good thing I did start early. Unfortunately, I don't finish the book to 2014. And that reminds me of this story. Um, I write in the Bilko Athletic Club about High Corn. He uh, had a perfect record in 1956, 5-0 when they farm him out to the miners or lower in the minor, the double A. And he's telling me the story and how throughout his career, uh, he had felt like a failure until he went to see the movie Field of Dreams. Um, High had uh, pitched briefly for the Cubs. By the way, he wore number 42. I always kidded him. I said, hi, you're the only guy I know of whose number has been retired in baseball and you never won a game. <laughs> but High... I was a great guy and we were having dinner one night and he's telling me this story and how he felt like he was a failure because he didn't stick in the majors. And, uh, I'm sitting there and this is 2001 and I've started a book in the 1970s. I haven't finished it and I'm feeling like a failure. Um, it just was a powerful moment for me to hear this man say he felt, even though he'd gone on to become very successful as a high school baseball and tennis coach, um, he's sitting there telling me that he felt like a failure until he went to see Field of Dreams. And at the end of this meal, I said, hi, until tonight, I felt like a failure. And so I hope some of these stories that I bring out in the book and what I'm saying here in the podcast um, encourage people, uh, you know, don't be so harsh on yourself. You know, life is... Uh, you're going through life and you're, you're constantly improving. You're, there's constantly things being added to your life. And uh, you may feel a failure one moment, but success may not be far behind it. Wise words. Yeah. I, Galen, I, I wanted to, I was marveling before the show with you about the players that you write about, that they're intertwined throughout all the stories and, they're almost not believable that you could write a fiction book about some of these, these guys. Do you mind if I throw a couple at you and you just kind of share some stories? Um, how about Joe Taylor? Joe Taylor, the the chapter in Left on Base in the Bush League is called Plain Drunk. Uh, <clears throat> Joe Taylor, uh, at least in his own head, felt that he had to have uh, a little liquid in him in order to hit better. And there's some truth to that. He, uh, Late in his career, he was playing for Seattle, and uh, they had him uh, on the wagon for a while, and he couldn't hit. So finally, some of the players went to the manager and said, look, how about if we just give Joe just a little taste, a little whiskey before the game? And uh, he went out and went on a home run hitting streak for several weeks. Um, he used to play games with Gaylord Perry. Gaylord Perry was a rookie for Tacoma. And Joe liked to uh, 
get a drink before the game, then go out to the ballpark. And if it was a rookie like Perry, he'd get up in his face and start talking and acting like he was drunk. Well, he was trying to convince the rookie to throw him a fastball, which, of course, he would jack out of the stadium. And finally, some of the veterans uh, got to talk with Gaylord and said, whatever that guy does, whatever he says, won't pay him any mind. He's trying to talk you and he's trying to get you to throw him a fastball that he'll jack out of the park. So that's Joe Taylor, plain drunk. <laughs> what about Steve Dalkowski? Steve Dalkowski, um, I live in Kingsport, Tennessee. This is where he started his career. And uh, he was known here for walking as many players as he struck out, which was always in double figures. He hit a player in the head here, uh, and I write about him in the book. Uh, there was a myth that this guy had lost his ear as a result of the fastball that Dalkowski hit him uh, with. Uh, he did not lose his ear. Um, he did suffer some damage there to the ear. Um, but Dalkowski, of course, went on and uh, became known and is sort of a mythical character now. Uh, some people believe he threw a fastball well over 100 miles per hour. Uh, Cal Ripken uh, Sr. Uh, uh, caught uh, Steve Dalkowski and insisted that he threw harder than anybody he ever saw in baseball, including Nolan Ryan. So, yes, Steve Dalkowski. I write about both Steve Dalkowski and um, uh, Ron Nechai. Uh, Ron Nechai, in 1952 in Bristol, ten in Virginia, uh, struck out 27 in a nine-inning game. That's the only time in uh, professional baseball history that's been done. And so uh, Nechai pitched in Bristol, uh, Dalkowski here in Kingsport, and both wound up uh, pitching uh, to Harry Dunlop, who is sort of the character who I bring in. Harry was a longtime coach in the majors, uh, mostly for Jack McKeon. Uh, who you, both you guys know had quite a career as a manager in the big leagues and was uh, manager Jim Cott in Missoula, Montana. Uh, the uh, Harry Dunlop caught the game that Ron Nechai struck out 27 and then later in his career, when Dukowski was out in California and making a little bit of a comeback, uh, Dunlop both managed and caught him there. So I use Harry Dunlop as sort of the central figure in the story, telling the story of Steve Dukowski and Ron Nechai. Baseball is a small world. And uh, obviously, um, Harry Dunlop, uh, you know, those stories you tell are amazing because uh, he was a coach when I covered the Padres. And I also had a chance to... Uh, interview Steve Dalkowski in his later years in the uh, home that he lived in uh, up in, in Connecticut uh, with, when his sister was taking care of him. So you, you nailed both of those stories. Well, you know, Harry Dunlop, one day uh, I was out in California visiting with Harry uh, and uh, I was lamenting what was happening to the game, Kevin. And Harry stopped me. He said, Galen, there's nothing wrong with the game. It's the people who are running the game. That sounds familiar. <laughs> and I stop and remind myself now that there's nothing wrong with the game. It's the people who are trying to do all these things that change the game. It's the, it's all the other things that have happened that have, um, uh, have impacted the game. But the game itself is still a beautiful game, and I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, it was the bond, the closest bond I had with my father. Uh, it was a bond I had with my uncle, who was like a second father. 
It's a bond I have with people like Bill Swank and and to, with you, Kevin. So uh, it's a great game. Galen, with the disintegration of the minor leagues, I mean, all your stories are rooted in deep history, uh, hitting around these small towns and minor league players. With the disintegration of the game, what is that going to do to America's pastime, do you believe? Well, it, it damages it severely, and I think there, there are ways, I think, to bring some of it back. I think uh, you can play games. Uh, you can take MLB to some of the minor league towns and play games there, some of these historic ballparks. Uh, that's what they ought to do to try to get back on the radar of these small towns in small-town America. Yeah. yeah, and they've kind of done, you know, they made the Field of Dreams game, which was a great success, but it's all tied to money, of course. And, um, you know, I it, it pains me to see what's happened to, to like you said, the, you know, the Appalachian League and things like that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's basically um, these people just after the almighty dollar and don't care about the game. Well, it there's still the passion for the game in these small towns. It just they they have no teams anymore, and there's there's nothing really to gravitate towards. Uh, there's this little town in Texas, Alpine, Texas, has a great history, has a great little ballpark that Sports Illustrated once called the the most beautiful beautiful ballpark in America. I haven't written about it yet. It's on my radar. It's called Coconut Field in Alpine, Texas, and they still have a team uh, alpine cowboys they play in an independence league um it's it's those kind of uh things that i think that uh mlb could do i mean they used to play exhibition games in alpine and they used to have an antelope uh serve antelope a barbecue it oh, wow. <laughs> after the games um sign, me up, sign me up yeah yeah no it, it's just uh those are the kind of things to be done there's a little ballpark right off of uh uh I forty Route six old Route sixty six in Elk City, Oklahoma. That's where Joe Bauman played uh, semi pro ball before mm-hmm. Joe Bauman hit seventy two home runs in the minors, uh, the most ever in uh, base in a single season. Joe Bauman uh, for three years played for an Elk City semi pro team. That ballpark's still there. It's still in great shape. What if you kind of took uh, exhibition games, whatever, and go and uh, to some of these historic ballparks that still stand? In Savannah, there's Grayson Stadium that the, a team called the Savannah Bananas. Yep, been there and wrote about them. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great story what they've done. I, I don't necessarily like what they do, but right. look, they fill the ballpark and they've kept that ballpark going, and that's a great ballpark with a great history. We need to some of these ballparks that we still have. I think in Patterson, New Jersey, they're bringing back uh, uh, the first Negro League ballpark or one of the only – Hinchcliffe. Stadium. Stadium, yeah. That's Stadium. a great story. I'm glad to hear him doing that. But that's that's what needs to be done is this preserve some of the history that we have. This preserve the stories of the minor leagues. And um, let's do more to connect the majors with the minors and and um, do more of the field of dream stuff, but beyond just this little town in Iowa. Yeah. Uh, Galen, you've been phenomenal today. Kevin, do you have any? Do you have more questions? Do you want to go to your your usual last question with our? Yeah, guests? I think uh, you know. Obviously, you, you deal with it in a lot of um, a lot of your books, but uh, and I'm, I'm I can't wait to read Coach of a Lifetime, your new book. Uh, I I always ask our guests, to, and we end on um, a simple question: whether they're they're former players, coaches, writers, whatever. And we had Jim Codd on just last week, and Jim was ter- terrific and gave a great answer. But 
take your time and think about this, but being a ball player, what does that mean to you? Uh, You know, you've looked at it from different angles, but being a ball player, what exactly does that mean to you? Well, Kevin, uh, I think it was a 12 year old in little league when I gave up on being a ball player and I realized I could turn a phrase better than I could a double play. Um, and that's kind of, and also I had had polio when I was two years old and, and as I got older, one of my heroes was Vic Wirtz who bounced back from polio. You may recall. Yes. And a lot of people don't remember, but Vic Wirtz was the guy who hit the ball that Willie Mays made this miraculous catch on known as the catch in the polo grounds. So I always related to Vic Wirtz because he had polio. And so I knew my limitations. Um, and I think that's uh, probably the one thing that um, I would say to someone is that knowing my limitations, that I'd had polio uh, when I was younger, steered me, got me going more towards the sports writing in. And then at age 16, I was in a car accident. It was quite serious. I was lucky to survive. It just convinced me more <laughs> that I needed to pursue writing. And and that's that's what I've done. And and I, the thing that got me through the, that period of time where I talk about where I felt like I was a failure was a letter that uh, one of the ballplayers, Jack Hanna, he was the brother of Joe Hanna, who was on that great 56 Angels team, and uh, he was a catcher. And so his brother Jack also played pro ball, never made it to the majors. <clears throat> but he wrote me this, this letter, and this is what he said. I, I'll leave you with this. <clears throat> what would life be if it weren't for the remembrances We have the future of which we know nothing. We have the present, which is so close and moving so swiftly by that we can't make much of it. But the past is as clear as our memories will allow. It is the memories of the past that convince me how important what I am doing is in the present. Beautifully said. You can definitely turn a phrase, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. That that was Jack Hanna who is quite a great songwriter. If you haven't, the sons of the San Joaquin, uh, Joe and Jack and their son, uh, Jack, uh, Joe's son, Lon. Uh, in fact, I'll tell this last story. <clears throat> they were being honored in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, at the same time, there was this big baseball banquet. And, uh, Bobby Bragan was going to speak there. And uh, Bobby Bragan, I grew up not liking Bobby Bragan. All right. I thought he was a loud mouth and everything. He was a manager of the Hollywood stars the crosstown rivals of the LA Angels. So I didn't like him. So here I am, I in the corporate world, I'd been a speechwriter. And I'm asked by the guy organizing this event, he says, you mind writing the introduction of the Hannah boys that Bobby Bregan is going to give? And uh, uh, I matured enough to where I said, yeah, I'll, I'll write it for you. So I wound up writing Bobby Bregan's <laughs> speech that he gave. He did the best job. Bobby Bragan had a, a photographic memory. He did not need, he, he gave the speech exactly as I wrote it without referring to any notes. Jeez. Anyway, that's how I got to know Bobby Bragan. We wound up becoming telephone pals. He wound up sending me photographs, one photograph from Life magazine where he's lying down on the home plate and uh, he won't get up. The umpires can't get him to get up. There's another picture of him offering an umpire an orange soda drink. <laughs> but that's the he signed them all for me. You know, he did these things. I didn't ask for it. But we came buddies, and uh, and I wound up liking Bobby Bragan. So 
that's uh that's that's how you go from being a kid to an adult and appreciating both ends of it tremendous tremendous stuff i like that answer well, uh galen share with our audience when is the book going to be released coach of a lifetime september uh roman and littlefield is the publisher it will be They'll be promoting it soon. Um, Coach of a Lifetime, the legendary, the story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach. I might add, when I approached the publisher about the book, and I've done the five baseball books, all with Roman and Littlefield, and they've been great to me. But I was told, we've never done a book on a high school football coach. And I said, well, this is no ordinary football coach. And what I did differently was I, rather than just send a, a submit a, a proposal with two chapters as you normally do, I went deeper into the book. I wound up going all the way through chapter 17, which is the book, the title called 42 on Orlando Thomas. Then I sent it to him and I knew that doing it that way, that's putting the cart before the horse. But I, I felt that that was going to convince them to feature this high school football coach. The fact that Nick Saban writes the forward, that's not incidental. Uh, you know, Nick had written it for this other author who was starting the book. And I went back through this author to Nick Saban. I had revised what this one author had done around the forward because it was a little rambling. And uh, Nick Saban signed off on it. So uh, it's mostly in Nick. Well, it's in Nick Saban's words because uh, we took it from an interview with Nick Saban about Coach Cook. I might, one last point, Coach Cook's son, oldest son, Jeff, uh, played at LSU, recruited by Nick Saban. He was a quarterback and also a baseball player. He wound up giving giving up football and playing baseball at the University of Southwestern Louisiana. But I always remember a story about Coach Cook where he was talking to his defensive coordinator. And he said his name was uh, Jimmy, um, uh, we call him Jimmy Mack. And he said, Jimmy, you know, if we had insisted on our kids just playing one sport, you know, we might have been without our best quarterback we ever had. Because Coach Cook believed that Jeff Cook at that time liked baseball better than football. And if he had required his players to play just one sport, Jeff, who was an outstanding pitcher and hitter, may well have just chosen baseball. So that's how much it hit home with Coach Cook the importance of letting kids play uh, more than one sport. They're better. And he always says a kid is better in season. He's he's better all the way around, better off in season, playing whatever sport that he's uh, capable of playing than he is out of season. Well, I hope coaches listen to that as well, because that's strong word. Parents, coaches, and, and, and players, think for yourselves. I mean, that's, this is, uh, you know, you've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of athletes, I'm sure, through the years, maybe more. And uh, that, that that's exactly what we're talking about. It's so important. And uh, can't tell you how much we enjoyed this conversation. And, uh, and uh, Dave will uh, finish us off here. Yeah, Galen, thank you so much. Both, both you and Kevin, wonderful today. Um, you guys are both wordsmiths, and I could listen to you for hours. Our audience got a great show today. Uh, please make sure that we pay attention in September and we'll, we'll have you back on when it's released, if that's okay. Um, sure. Get the coach of a lifetime. Sounds like a wonderful story uh, as all the, the five other books that you wrote. I enjoyed going through the notes you gave me. Um, thanks again. 
to our audience of 11,000 almost this morning. We're creeping up on that magic number. Make sure you continue to support us, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Make sure you download, listen, like, and subscribe, and write us some notes if you want. We always take it into consideration. This is Real Voices of the Game Productions, episode 111, and this is Coach and Kern our flagship show. Thanks again, guys. We appreciate you. Thank you. It was music to our ears Tape measure homers just like the babe He put them in the stratosphere What's on second? I don't know's on third According to Abbott and Costello